everyone, and welcome to the first edition of a series of Directors Club bonus content exclusive to those who subscribe at Patreon. Now, this first episode is obviously available in the regular feed as a sample of what you can expect, but all future editions of this will only be able to be accessed over at patreon.com slash directors club. And if you sign up, you're supporting the show, the now playing network and me, which is cool and (laughs) greatly appreciated, but not required. Um, The plan is to offer uh, sort of a monthly rotation of these are the ideas I came up with. And one of them, my, my guest today has been a part of, which is a actors club episode as well as music video commentary. But mm-hmm. this here edition is simply called Movies You Should See. <laughs> Very simple, to the point. I know there are a lot of podcasts that just do single movie discussions, and I just want to catch up with a movie that my guest has seen, most likely loves, and we're going to talk about it for about 45 minutes. My goal, like I said, is to do this for hopefully a monthly basis, at least for the next year, and 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 you can guarantee that there's shorter content other than the regular episodes that will be available on Patreon. And today's guest has supported the show for a long time now, and I couldn't be more grateful. He's also a great podcaster, a film commentator, historian, writer, all-around wonderful guy, Mr. Bill Ackerman of Supporting Characters. Welcome back. Of course, thank you so much for having me back, and I'm excited to talk to you about this film. I think I don't think as in all the years I've known you, we've we've never talked about this movie. <laughs> it's kind of wild. I mean, to, 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 yeah, today's film is a special one. I had watched this several years ago, but I remember being a little sleepy, and I did like it. And I certainly, I think I might have even given it four stars, but I knew I wanted to revisit it again in the future. And lo and behold, it's available on the Criterion channel and Blu-ray for the first time. I believe it was remastered in 4K, right? Uh, I believe it was. Yeah. I was just watching it earlier today. It looked beautiful. I mean, so much better than any version I ever saw before. Yeah, because I think I saw it on Hulu several years ago and the quality wasn't that great to be honest. Uh, But it's now, I believe, also available in places like iTunes. And of course, we're talking about Tom Noonan's What Happened Was, uh, a film I've described a bit as being like, you know, Before Sunrise, as done by Charlie Kaufman, especially if you're a fan of, I'm thinking of ending things, I couldn't help but see a little bit of the influence here this time. Uh, yeah, so. well, Charlie Kaufman's a good point of comparison because I remember when I want to say it was one being John Malkovich, but it might have been uh, adaptation. But one of those, one of those Kaufman scripted Spike Jones movies um, when he was doing press for it and talking about films that inspired him, and I remember him mentioning what happened was as one of his inspirations or one of his favorite films. And I was like, at the time, I mean, what happened was it already kind of fallen off the radar of a lot of people. You know, after its initial Sundance kind of splash, you know, it, it, it was one of those films that kind of just quickly disappeared. I mean, part of it was because of the timing of the VHS was, um, was it 96? And so it was right before DVD was like a, you know, a given the way the wife had a DVD. So it, it kind of just had a VHS release and then only up and only like really this past week, <laughs> it's been back in, in, you know, in physical media uh, terms with the, uh, with the new Blu-ray. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty wild. I was reading an interview 
with Noonan, who was a little bit disappointed in the studio because they put a lot more time and effort into promoting David Mamet's Oleana at the time. And yeah. did yeah. they didn't give a lot of support to this movie in terms of a theatrical push, which is really disappointing. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of other play adaptations that one is you know a little divisive to say the least and (laughs) and yeah i certainly i even showed one of my students once that movie and they're like nope not gonna get behind this one and i completely understand why uh whereas this one oh wow there's so much to say i don't know where to begin but i also want to know what your first experience was seeing this movie too well, I saw this one in 96. Um, it was the first week that it came out on videotape. I was actually looking forward to seeing it like and returning the video store because I remembered the the ads for it were just this very misleading uh, image of Karen Silas like in some kind of slinky outfit like on her back and like um, Jean siskel's quote like was something like um i've always felt like there was a great movie to be made out of a first date now i've seen it it's fantastic or something to that effect (laughs) so it was like a it was both selling it was like that miramax kind of you know joe levine kind of like selling the sexuality of an art film kind of promotion (laughs) like it was basically like selling the sexiness of it which is kind of like i know tom noonan always hated that 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 poster art but like i remember seeing the ads for it like at the video store and so i remember renting it like the first week that they got it um because i was just curious about it and it was like the year after i had seen before sunrise i think that was the first film that i had ever seen that was you know a conversation between two people told in real time like i i didn't see my dinner with andre until i think i saw i think i saw that after what happened was but like it was like a relatively like radical form to me to you know to have something that was like two characters in real time like a play and um i remember watching it in my dorm with my roommate and when it was over my roommate walked i was like i'm gonna go get drunk (laughs) because it was just so (laughs) harrowing i always remember that um but i was just focused on the humor you know i guess it's more of the awkward humor that is on display throughout this movie too and i certainly do like cringe at times and laugh. <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, well, it I is think, harrowing. Well, I, that kind of cringe comedy style, I'm trying to think what I, I mean, I, I don't know if that would have been an influence on someone like, I, I, I feel like Larry David gets a lot of credit for like popularizing that with like, <laughs> you know, things like Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know how much Tom Noonan's work influenced anyone beyond Charlie Kaufman in that territory, but I definitely, it definitely feels like you know, it hasn't aged at all because it like that style of humor has only kind of become more prevalent. I mean, it, you know, that was the same year as like Spanking the Monkey and some other films that also were like, I mean, Todd Salons is a, is like, I think Ooh, the yeah. following year, but it's like, you know, that kind of uncomfortable indie comedy was starting to emerge in the, uh, you know, in a few different places, but it was definitely like an East Coast uh, thing at that time. I mean, it's also... Yeah, but so for me, like I, I saw it and I was really impressed with it. I bought it when, as soon as I could afford to get a copy of it myself, and then I, I, I transferred to Ithaca College and I had a film club there and I uh, hosted a screening of what happened was, and I actually wrote to Tom Noonan and got his permission. Well, I, he said, he said, I don't know, like I don't really control this. I mean, I can't really give. I mean, I, I support you showing it to people, <laughs> but I, I don't <laughs> think he really controlled the, the, you know, the screening rights. He couldn't stop me, but. Um, 
so I showed it, and then and then that f- Christmas break, I I ended up um, putting up flyers for Tom Noonan's Wang Dang, the uh, the, the play that he did, and uh, had a little bit of a like you know acquaintanceship with him. I wouldn't say we were friends, but like um, I saw both both casts of Wang Dang and you know I mean like the wife which I guess we could probably talk about as well like all these films were like you know the the work of Tom Noonan was like a major thing to me in like my late teens early 20s and it's like one of he's one of those figures that I don't know like um because the what what happened was and the wife kind of both really seemed to disappear and because uh Wang Dang he never released it and then the shape of something squashed is like just like a thing that you can get on Vimeo, but it's not, I don't think it had a proper release. Like Tom Noonan as a director really kind of receded as his like, you know, star as a character actor has kind of continued to, to rise. I think, I mean, I don't know if he's had as many parts, his choices, um, like uh manhunter or last action hero in terms of like, um, like a mainstream audience would maybe know him. But I, I think as far as like indie directors, uh, or even people like Sean Penn using him in the pledge, like he's definitely, um, you know, a recognizable character actor. Yeah, almost in the same way as like Kevin J. O'Connor. I almost liken their physical presence in the same way. They sort of have that like tall, intimidating kind of, kind of, you know, sort of personality, but they're also very affectionate. Like, like there's a, a, a vulnerability with his character, um, Michael here that like, cause sometimes because he was, you know, in Manhunter and last action here, you just immediately pigeonhole him as a kind of a creepy villain. And mm-hmm. you're not exactly sure what, you know, like, cause there are moments in this film where I question both of their reactions to something, including just his decision to just up and leave when it's clear that they're having a connection, you know, like she gets out the cake and suddenly maybe she's acting a little frantic, but she's also acting very, very happy and ecstatic with how things are progressing. And then suddenly he's just like, Nope, I I can't deal with this. I'm out of here. And part of me is like, Oh man, no, (laughs) don't do that because I think things were going pretty well. So what, I was going to ask you this too. Why do you think he decided to just up and go? Is it because he's socially awkward and not able to handle the, you know, where the night could possibly end up going (laughs) between the two? Yeah, I think I, I just took it that he's overwhelmed, you know, by how fast it's all moving. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think it's yeah, like social anxiety. That's how I always kind of read it. And it may be that, yeah, just that, you know, he, yeah, like I don't know if he's like someone that like needs to have a certain amount of control, and he's kind of out of you know, like the situation is kind of out of his control at that point. Um, I don't know. It's funny because I, well, first of all, I was going to ask you: Do we need to give any kind of synopsis of this beyond the fact that it's a it's a date between coworkers told in real time at at the woman's apartment? I mean, well, we I, sure can. Uh, it's a very simple premise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, like I described it as before, sun sunrise esque it really is just two people meeting up in an apartment for a first date kind of situation. Although again, Michael doesn't necessarily perceive it as a first date. They're just sort of getting together after work for dinner. Uh, And we have Jackie played by Karen uh, Silas. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. and Michael played by Tom Noonan. And they sort of just, well, the first 10 minutes is really intriguing. I have to say, because I almost got after hours vibes with some of the camera movement, some of the camera placement, just like being inventive with a small confined area while, um, Voices Carry by Till Tuesday is playing and she's getting ready. And this is this goes on for like a good 10 minutes before Michael even arrives at the apartment. And there are choices made cinematically <laughs> that I'm just kind of like, wow, you're doing really cool, interesting things that I wish there was more of in The Wife. There are moments, don't get me wrong, there are certain things in the wife that I actually really appreciated and the fact that they're splitting the couples in in two at one point, like mm. ones in, you know, two are in the living room, two are in the kitchen and you sort of get to see them interacting in different ways within the same frame. And yeah, he well, does a lot of really interesting, interesting things just in the first 10 minutes. Well, I mean, I think it's important to, to say that all of Tom Noonan's films as director are, stage plays originally that he always intended to make into films, but they, Correct. they, I mean, they, they're all like in one location and it's usually like, um, you know, a location that the audience is, um, like hanging out in like the, what happened was play at the paradise theater. Like you all sat around the apartment, you know, and with the, um, <laughs> With the wife, well, it was wifey, and then they changed it to the wife. I mean, they were all, I think, sitting around the house. I mean, Wang Dang, you know, you're sitting in the kind of, you know, chintzy hotel room of the character. And I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, you're meant to kind of just feel like you're, I mean, you're like kind of eavesdropping on a situation. Um, you know, but like, so he's had practice with all of the, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the scenes they, they've had like plenty of time to work out all the character beats and rehearsals and blocking, you know, I think, well, blocking, maybe not so much with camera, but like, you know, I mean, a lot of the, of the, you know, the, the, the interaction between the two uh, characters in this, I mean, they've had, uh, you know, that whole play process to work out, um, you know, their characters. And, and uh, so it's, I don't know. You look at the, the opening of the, what happened was, and, um, yeah, it feels like the kind of thing that you'd be observing the character doing just the rituals of getting ready for work or getting ready for the date. Um, and like, and that's that kind of thing you don't see in movies so much, but it's more dramatic maybe in person because, you know, you're seeing the, the person actually doing it in front of you. Um, so it's, it's yeah, an unusual, right. yeah, it's an unusual um, way to open a film. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 voices carry, you know, it perfectly uh, fits. I mean, I was, I have that seven inch. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great song. It always will be. And I, I think I was just expecting a point and shoot almost Kevin Smith style approach just because I, that's kind of what I associate these types of movies to do, you know, just because we're, you know, we'll focus on the characters and just, have the camera be very still, but especially in that first 10 minutes in terms of cinematography, I was just, Ooh, I was kind of going, I was kind of like dazzled a little bit by just like that shot where her face and this like mannequin's face yeah. are like beautifully framed together in one, sh in one moment. But he just does really interesting things. Like even when she's coming home and that flickering light happens, I guess outside the apartment, then we're back in the apartment. I mean, it was just really interesting things 
that made it more than just, okay, let's just put the camera and let the actors do their thing, which is kind of what I associate with a lot of play adaptations, but I love it when they just decide let's get a little flashy, but not in a way that felt, uh, you know, showy or grandiose or like, let's, you know, be do it just to do it. It actually heightens the emotion. It heightens the sort of anxiety that you're feeling getting ready for a date that you're really looking forward to. I think we've all experienced <laughs> like, what am I going to wear? What makes me look the best? How should I, you know, present myself? And that the that first 10 minutes really gets that going beautifully. Um, yeah. And again, this, this, this actress, I, I know from Hal Hartley's world <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I'm very curious to see other work from her because I, outside of that, I don't know if I've seen her in anything else. Karen Silas, I I can't think of anything that I have seen. I know that I mean I, I I know that she starts at the very beginning with Hal Hartley. I mean I think she's even in Kid, the um the student film that he did, um at SUNY Purchase. But I I I I know that she did a film called Risk that played at Sundance the same year as What Happened Was, and she I think did television after this. But I I I, mo- I mostly associate her with Hal Hartley and with What Happened Was. Yeah, there's a movie I remember seeing the video box for called Female Perversions. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Video store. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw that too. Is that, in that? Yeah, I saw that in the theater. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's easy to find or anything, but I'm a little curious to go back to that one. Uh, yeah. But again, if you know Tom, Tom Noonan's presence, especially in something like Synecdoche, New York, it's, it's definitely on display here in this film. But yeah, he also well that, really lets his character shine. Yeah, well, that kind of aloof, kind of, you know, using kind of dry humor as a defense mechanism kind of thing. I mean, that that feels like that comes from Tom Noonan, the guy, more, you know, I mean, it's, you know, he, he wrote that part for himself. And I think it was a chance for him to really, you know, showcase his own uh, voice, um, you know, like his own sensibility, like after playing all these psychopaths and killers and, you know, villainous types. You know, it was a, a chance to to show that he could do. I mean, kind of the, in the in the way that like maybe Cassavetti's got typecast a little bit for playing heavies and the you know they're crazy characters yeah. after Dirty Dozen, Rosemary's Baby, you know. But his own personal films as a as a director, um, you know, would have shown kind of you know more colors he had in his you know paint box. And I know that uh, you know Tom Noonan was in Gloria, and you know I, I'm sure took some kind of. I don't know if he's ever cited Cassavetes as an influence, but I mean, I'm sure that he must have found that like somewhat in- inspiring that, that kind of personal f- filmmaking style. Cause his, I mean, his films as a director all feel like incredibly personal. Um, oh, certainly. And yeah. I, I described on a recent voices and visions episode, I described a band as being vulnerable and intimate. And I think that applies to this film because you're really experiencing in the moment, these people reacting to certain things and and there's times where it's really off putting (laughs) because they'll say something and you're like, Oh, I don't know if that was the right thing to say (laughs) in that moment. And obviously we've all had those moments where did I just say something a little wrong? (laughs) And, you know, I love that they sort of call each other out at times, but also he uses levity in just really interesting ways to where she doesn't even know if he's being funny 
at times just because of his deadpan delivery. Yeah. 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 The deadpan comedy was something that, I mean, I mean, certainly since we mentioned Hal Hartley, I mean, you know, deadpan comedy was in a lot of independent films in that, in that, in the early nineties and, you know, Hal Hartley, you know, has the connection between like Ted Hope being an executive producer on this, Karen Silas being a Hal Hartley veteran. I think the, the set design on this was by someone that did the set design on trust and stuff. You know, so it was like, Hmm. I mean, there was like definitely some, shared DNA with, you know, figures like Hal Hartley or Jim Jarmusch or whatever. But like, um, yeah, that, that awkward, like, like, uh, inability to totally connect in terms of conversation. I, I, I was thinking this time watching it again, like how both this and the wife play up class differences in the way that Mm. like, that's a factor with like, just, um, you know, her being kind of like this, you know, this girl from Queens who's kind of working her way up, you know, as a, uh, you know, secretary or, you know, executive assistant, you know, or whatever, whatever the title is that, that they give her. Um, but whereas he's somebody that was this, you know, Harvard dropout. And so they're, they're coming from different worlds. He's, um, you know, at least he, he's putting on airs as to be, to be knowledgeable about things like science. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, someone that's talking about, you know, partying to deep purple, you know, like in the party, <laughs> you know, in her youth. I mean, they, they, uh, they, they, they're not speaking exactly the same language. And that's, that's, a, you know, something you see in the wife also with the, oh, for um, sure. like the more blue collar dancer character that Karen, uh, young plays, you know, kind of in conflict with these kind of slightly, you know, pretentious new age <laughs> guru types, but it's that same thing. Um, even in the later plays that, you know, he, he worked with, like, I mean, that, that's something he seems to really uh, appreciate that tension between like someone that's maybe putting on airs, you know, a little bit, you know, and I guess as someone that's a working actor, you know, he's, he's probably come into uh, those kind of clashes all the time. I mean, I, I forget, I mean, I think he, I'm trying to remember if, if the Harvard and the, uh, hearing voices of that was autobiographical. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I know he was living in a commune at the time that he got involved in acting, but I thought that that was actually like a, like a reference to his own life, that, that hmm. element of Michael. I'm not yeah. 100%. Well, there's definitely tension here, but I, I mean, I think we can also relate to this idea of exaggeration or even to some degree, putting on a facade, not necessarily like lying in this vindictive manner, but wanting to seem more confident than we actually are or more knowledgeable about a subject than we actually are. And then, yeah. you know, we'll get like to, we'll he, get to the ending, but like when he mansplains microwaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, those are things now I kind of, even when, in, when I'm talking about movies with people, I, I almost like check myself in order to not come across as mansplaining. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, cause I don't want to come across as that way either. And, and you know, I want to be open to other people's uh, opinions and interpretations, but really there's, there's a, a lot of it's great. The dinner they share together is really great. His reaction to the word seafood uh, mm-hmm. is, is awesome. Like just everything that they experienced together, including her just being kind of frazzled at times and, you know, forgetting to serve the salad. And like, these are all things that I might have experienced at one time on a date 
Well, that's but also there's... the alcohol too, because True. that's one thing they establish in both yeah. in both films. They they establish the the perpetual drinking over the course of the of the night, and um, you know she has that great line like, "I don't really drink wine that much, just you know, on weekends and evenings, <laughs> evenings and weekends." <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, um, yeah, I. I I mean, it, it feels like realistic behavior. I mean, even just, you know, when we, you know, since you mentioned the mansplaining, you know, element of it, I mean, she's receptive to it because it's just either she's just being polite or because she's just excited to have him over, you know, yeah. and so she's got, you know, this private audience. This was something I was going to ask you um, because I think that I've always kind of took it that she was the more sympathetic character um of the two for the most part because she's kind of letting her guard down and and being really open and vulnerable and he's kind of putting on airs to seem kind of cool and detached for most of the time and even when things get you know physical he's you know he's got that you know uh i didn't know this was a date kind of thing which i guess is what inspired the whole uh premise of the of the play um you know someone saying that to someone on a date and like you know, the other person kind of exploding at them. Um, but if the, if the genders were reversed, um, mm. I'm wondering if, if, if it would play differently because it's a situation where this person has brought their coworker over, not telling them that it's a date, not telling them that's their birthday, <laughs> springing all this kind of real personal stuff. I mean, beyond whatever personal element, you know, exists in her short story, um, yeah. you know, if, 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 if a guy brought a female coworker over that didn't know it was a date and then, oh, by the way, it's my birthday. And like, I, I don't know if it would play any differently as far, because I, what I, I know that would. Tom, I think what Tom Noonan has said about the play is that some audiences found him to be repellent creep. And sometimes they thought that she was the manipulative kind of uh, person in that in that uh in that duo i think the film kind of is more on her side than his side i mean i mean they i think it's sympathetic to both but i think that i, I think that we i don't know if we necessarily hiss but we uh you know when he's when he's kind of being a little bit condescending maybe even without realizing it like we're not like like we cringe <laughs> we, we cringe with her you know with what he's saying yeah, and I definitely do. And there are times where I'm frustrated with him because I don't know if I was in that situation, it's possible I might react similarly. But at the same time, I really do feel like they're connecting and things are getting better. And hey, there's a birthday cake instead of being like, uh, I got to get out of here. I'd, I'd be more on the, I'd be more apt to see where the night is going and I actually sympathize with her in that moment <laughs> because it's like, hey, we were kissing and now here's a birthday cake and I was about to get champagne. And when she gets angry, I, I kind of feel that's a little justified. But then yeah. again, it turns later on with his monologue. And then suddenly I do... <laughs> I do sympathize with him again. So it's like he finds equal footing for both of these characters. He finds a lot of empathy for their responses to certain things. I think, I think that's, what's kind of amazing is that he, there's a lot of depth and dimension 
to Jackie, even though it's, you know, it's not a collaborative script in the same way that something like before sunset was where mm-hmm. both of them had input, but it does feel like Tom Noonan really cared about Jackie just as much as Michael in, in the film, which is great. Yeah. That's what no, makes I, it great. Yeah. And he's definitely not writing two characters that both talk the same. I mean, that's, yes. you know, the complaint Kevin about Smith again. Yeah. Yeah, but even like Hal Hartley sometimes falls into that, you oh, know, sure, sure. In, a, in a different way. But uh, yeah, I, that, but that's something that you don't you don't really encounter with any of Tom Noonan's films or plays. I mean, you know, he's he's good at writing his own particular rhythm, but then the other characters never sound like him. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, we no. do have to we do have to talk about that moment halfway through where things shift in a way that gets a little surreal. Uh, and unexpected because of her short story that she reads that we later Mm. find is published into a book under a different title, no less, but he gets really playful with sound design and that dollhouse and those dolls. I'm just like, Whoa, (laughs) this is even better. Well, did you notice that, um, that sound that she makes to, um, to illustrate the uh, tire screeching, that kind of strange bird-like sound. Did you yeah. notice that it's kind of buried in the sound design throughout the film? No, I I saw his Q and A on the Criterion Channel, which you which I also recommend. Um, mm. And I, when he said that, I was like, "Wow, maybe I have to watch it again." <laughs> yeah, I know that. that you- I remember, yeah, I've always, yeah, I, I, I didn't notice it the first time I saw it because, you know, you wouldn't, but like, yeah, I, it's one thing I, I, I was aware of. And I know that when, um, I think when he's at the intercom uh, at the beginning of the, of the film, when uh, she's getting ready and like, uh, you know, throws the oh, broken porcelain thing in the, uh, yeah. Yeah, in the uh, aquarium, you hear it around that point. Um, but yeah, no, let, let, let's talk about that scene because that's the one scene that really feels like a um what's the word like it it, it it's hard I to could find almost, the right word well it, it it's it's the it's i could understand that throwing people because that's the that's the one scene that really feels like um like extraordinary like like writerly kind of situation whereas almost everything else feels like realistic date thing this feels like like things become like very expressionistic like you mentioned with the sound design and the camera work and he's seeing figures in the dollhouse and it becomes like quasi horror movie ish uh and And the sounds uh, of kids playing outside and stuff yeah yeah it feels it actually starts feeling a little bit like a david lynch uh cable thing called hotel room yeah Um, totally yeah like the blackout episode of that and um you know, and Lynch has a connection to the wife later, but um, the uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's an odd scene. I know that I remember some critics were like less keen on it because it did feel like it becomes, um, yeah, like this very like unusual departure from the rest of the of the story. But I think it, I, I, I kind of buy it. I kind of, I kind of go with it. Um, what do you feel about it? I kind of love it. Um, yeah, it's a detour but a fascinating one. The story itself is completely unexpected and dark. Even his response, that's a children's story. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that wouldn't be my first response. I would, I would definitely start with some praise. 
because it actually is very compelling and surprising. And yet his first response is actually, Oh really? That's, that's a, that's a kid's story, huh? Hmm. Yeah. I I would say if if the one, the one critical thing I would say about the film is I think that like all the perspiration around his mouth, like don't be that scared, but yeah, um, I I wonder if he's, (laughs) I don't know necessarily like intimidated is the right word, but again, overwhelmed by the fact that she's such a damn good writer and he's, just kind of taking notes in a notebook and not really doing anything with them. Like he's experiencing some sort of envy at that point. I don't know. Like at the same time, moments later they're making out and they're, yeah, it's hard for me to tell like, what is he really feeling in that moment other than kind of, yeah, like shock and fear almost. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when she starts like having a hard time emotionally finishing the story talking about the kind of predatory man in the, in, mm. you know, talking to the woman in it, it feels like, it feels like we're meant to read it that at least some of this is autobiographical, even though, you know, she's indicating that, you know, she has, you know, parents and a lot of siblings and it's not like she's trying to, say that this is like her story. It's fiction, but I, she's clearly touching on some real uh, dark, you know, interpersonal kind of relationships, uh, you know, from her past that she's, you know, trying to, uh, I mean, she's trying to escape that, that her past and like move on, you know, in Manhattan, but also kind of maybe tap into that for this, to this story. Um, so I don't know, like, um, like as far as like Noonan's reaction, I don't know, or Michael's reaction. I I don't know if he's afraid that like she's revealing some really dark, fucked up things about herself, and like that, like he's yeah. intimidated by that, or if it's just intimidating because she's this kind of evocative prose writer, and he's kind of faking being a writer, you know, to seem cool on a date. Um, yeah, I, I mean, was you thinking can read that. As, yeah. I was thinking more of the latter. I mean, at the same time, maybe he is. Maybe that also explains why he decides to leave. Like maybe he's, um, anxious towards her being that open. I mean, whether it's autobiographical or not, I don't think it is. But just the fact that she created something like that. What does that mean? What kind of emotional com- complexity exists within her? And am I able to process that when I can barely process my own, you know, issues? So maybe right. he just, that helps me understand a little bit better why he ups and leaves. Cause personally I always go, I wouldn't do that. So that's a silly choice, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, I, I, I think, talking it out that really does make that a little bit more understandable yeah i mean it's yeah it's it's ambiguous i mean you know i i i think that like he's i think he's a little bit afraid because she seems so much more dark and complicated like you know that Mm -hmm. her brain came up with that uh but then he's not exactly i mean the whole reason that he's even kind of urging her to talk about this to tell him the stories because i think he's uncomfortable with how intimate it's growing between them physically in the room with alcohol and True. like he, it's it's like he's stalling 
essentially, you know, like he doesn't want to face up the fact that things could become romantic. And so he's kind of pushing her, like he's, he's trying not to, to split, but he's also trying to change the subject. You know, she's, she's not throwing herself at him at all, but she is not like, I mean, certainly like there's times when she's just kind of like sprawled out. Like, is there anything else that you want (laughs) to like, like, you know, that, that feel like, you know, you know, uh, not totally subtle. (laughs) Well, she explains, you know, that she's found him interesting and attractive at the office. Yeah. Yeah. When she's, yeah. When she's saying that, like, she doesn't respond to that very well necessarily. Well, he he pours, he pours more, uh, more wine in her glass. (laughs) You know, when she says that. So that almost looks like he's trying to, you know, loosen her up further. Um, But then, yeah, it it is kind of, it's awkward because, yeah, he seems to like not really have made up his mind as to what to do. I mean, at any point in the evening. (laughs) Well, I guess, yeah, sharing a birthday cake and champagne, it might be too, too fast, too, too much at once for him. You know, I mean. I guess I've I've had that reaction on a date myself to where like mm, this is a little too much too quickly I don't know if I'm ready for this and yeah that's uh, I mean it's understandable so people move at different paces especially when they feel a connection towards somebody and it it, it is a bummer when you're not on the same wavelength I think that's probably the strongest moment for me really is her reaction because that sucks. <laughs> you know, it sucks. Like, oh, uh, I was, you know, pretty much ready to spend the night with this person, but this person actually feels very differently than I do, and that sucks. And I think we can identify with that <laughs> to some degree. Yeah, and it, yeah, I think so. And I think it's you know, it's a it's a situation where you don't even know where it would go if if she was willing to talk about it. You know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, when he sees that he's hurt her, he is willing to, to talk about that situation and she won't, she won't allow it. And that forces him to really, I mean, expose just how, uh, just how damaged or how, you know, you know, frightened how, uh, you know, troubled he is and, you you know, loses all the cool, reveals all the you know, the secrets that he can, you know, um, so it's, I, I don't know. And, and I know that some people might find that to, because to be like, I don't know, like melodramatic is, is, is the word because melodramatic is not necessarily like a, um, criticism to me. I like melodrama, but it's like the point where it goes from being deadpan and naturalistic into some kind of, you know, clear emotional climax. I know that when Tom Noonan was writing it, he had said, um, that he was trying, I think, I think this might've been an interview with Mike White for projection booth on the man Hunter episode, but he mentioned like how he was trying to write something where it wasn't a lot of big emotional scenes for himself. And so he could just kind of disappear more into the character and not worry about like these kind of big show stopping moments. But that's like the one part where Noonan gets to play this kind of heartbreaking note that he doesn't normally get to play in all these villain parts that he had. Um, I don't think he really gets real and genuine too yeah yeah no i i kind of wish he had been able to get something like that in the wife as well but it's not really i mean he's kind of like the the least present character of the four in that one but um 
Yeah, yeah no, life I, is interesting in that I didn't have the same emotional response. Be- and I think a lot of that has to do with how this film ends. It almost geared me up for that expectation in the wife. Like, when's there going to be that sort of huge monologue that's very revealing and moving? And I, I, it's, I, I think the wife, again, almost similar to the first time I watched this, I need to watch it again. Because yeah, I'll well, be prepared for it better. <laughs> well, the wife, I would say, I mean, in a nutshell, for anyone listening that hasn't seen it, is about a um, this kind of new agey guru couple that are uh, trying to have a night to themselves. They, there's maybe a little bit of tension in the marriage, and then one of their most neurotic patients shows up unannounced at, in the night at their house with his. Uh, kind of like boisterous, larger than life uh, wife um, that he's, you know, clearly trying to work out some issues concerning her and like, you know, their marriage. And it becomes kind of like a, like a riff on the who's a Virginia Wolf kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Like as far as like, you know, the two couples, dr- alcohol, per- re- hard revelations, <laughs> you know, over the course of a night. Um you know, but uh, I I love that film as well. I mean, I didn't see the play, but I've I've always loved the film, and uh, I, I I don't say that it's a better film than what happened was, but it's an interesting, moody, funny, occasionally kind of alarming <laughs> kind yeah. of movie. Um, you know, and and the the cast. I mean, Wallace Shawn and Julie Haggerty, Karen Young and Noonan are all terrific in it i wish that was easier to see i have the old fox lorber dvd which is like one of the oldest dvds i have i think and um yeah, i looked at it this week and for the first time in a long time it it's it's shown its age you know if somebody wants to step up and re-release this one next i mean i'd be all for it but uh, oh yeah yeah I, I i certainly think that there's a lot of great things about that one too but at the same time you know me, I love being able to relate <laughs> to a character. And I think that automatically makes it a better viewing experience for me. So when Michael comes out towards the end of this movie and says certain things, I, I wouldn't say I, I've experienced every little thing that he has, but I I understand that like the social awkwardness that he's trying to convey, it's, you know, and it's something that oh, yeah. he, he he even struggles to put into words. It's because it's it's kind of ineffable. You don't really always know why you can't say certain things or you can't feel certain things or you have done the wrong thing in the moment. It's he just conveys the 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 awkward silence, the anxiety and the surprises that are all a part of a first date. But in that moment, he just sort of breaks down and kind of says, I'm just a, I'm a lonely dude that sits in his apartment and watches TV. <laughs> you know, I I've been putting on this front this whole time and I'm not even sure why I've been doing it, but I've just been doing it and that's not me at all. And I wanted to explain myself and gosh, that's, that's a powerful moment. And even her reaction is kind of neutral. And I really loved, like she doesn't like run over to hug him either and say, Oh, it's going to be okay. It's yeah. more of like, yeah, she, she has yeah. her own kind of heartbreaking speech. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, definitely. And I yeah, I mean, I, that, I that, I mean, that was, that was definitely the, 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 I mean, the scene that kind of at, at 19 years old really kind of, you know, was what made me fall in love with the film. Cause I hadn't, I, at that age, I don't think I had really seen, uh, 
those kind of thoughts articulated in a film. Like I is, I mean, just in my own exposure to movies, I don't think I'd seen a, a character let their guard down that nakedly yet. Um, you know, obviously I would catch up later, but I mean, as far as like, you know, I mean, the kind of films that would resonate with me later, like Chili Sins of Winter, like in those kind of like troubled male protagonists, you know, uh, I, I think what happened was, was one of the first ones I ever saw like that. And um, I mean, it's not really what it's about. It's not a character study about Michael, but it's, um, but that, that uh, window into like his neuroses, I think, you know, <laughs> at that age, you know, really, you know, captured my imagination. It's funny now watching it and I'm older than both of those actors. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's definitely strange to see, to see it, you know, um, from, you know, 44 year old perspective, um, you know, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that it's, I think, I think, I mean, I think the, the, the truths of it as far as like relationships and communication and the, the, uh, the awkward comedy of, 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 uh, of, trying and failing to connect, you know, in, in, in high pressure situations like that. I mean, that, that's, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, things that we've mentioned, like, uh, you know, uh, Kirby enthusiasm or, um, the work of Charles Kaufman, you know, that, and, uh, and that maybe even Ricky Gervais early on with the office and things like that. There was just this sense of, yeah, you're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to mess up. You're going to look weird or dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I work, you know, and I think that's the thing that I've always said this about first dates, job interviews, auditions, they're just not set up to feel real or genuine, or you can't actually be the, the person that you really are because essentially you're a salesman. You're trying to sell yourself to another human being with those situations, you know, and that's kind of what it, you know, going, going to another movie that sort of celebrates the awkwardness of human interactions, Magnolia, that moment that Claudia has at the restaurant with um, John C. Riley's character, where she just mm-hmm. says, let's just be awkward. Let's just be the people that we are instead of putting on this facade always spoke to me. <laughs> it's like, you do have to be careful. You, you should know the person that you're going on a date with. If you want to do that, if you want to have that approach and just be like, all right, let me tell you about my issues, my trauma, everything, and put it all out on the table. I don't think that works <laughs> in every occasion, but I think I appreciate that. And I think that's exactly why I appreciate this movie, because it sort of tackles this hypervigilance that we feel when we know we're being not necessarily judged, but just examined. And we, we know there's attraction. We know there's something there, but we're also afraid to acknowledge it. Uh, and I also think towards the end that the final images kind of hint at like this urban alienation because he sort of pans out to just the city street and this other apartment building across from her. That sort of makes me think like we're all feeling this kind of loneliness in some yeah. way. Like it feels like a condition that we can't escape from. Yeah, I think that's what he's trying to say is that like this is, you know, one story among many similar stories in the city. And yeah. then, you know, in those other windows, you know, you know, similar you know, dynamics are playing out. I mean, that's how I always read it. I don't know if that's what he thought, but that's how I read it. Yeah, it sort of becomes I always say this a lot in like as a yin and yang contrast or something, but 
we've just experienced this Michael or Michael <laughs> micro level interaction. And that final image sort of speaks to the macro level of just, this is probably happening to a lot of people this. And I certainly know that there are moments where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's definitely happened. Like I think when she says, uh, I have some harder stuff, <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> in terms of liquor. And he says something like, Oh, you mean drugs? I think I've done that and then don't get the laugh I was hoping for (laughs) at a date, you know, just because maybe that's not the right response to have, even if you are joking. Um, You just kind of know the person that you're with at that time and where they stand and what their sense of humor is like, because there are dates where I've been on where I I have something said something like that and it works. Um, yeah well that's actually one that's actually one thing that like you know for me ties it to something like chili scenes of winter is like you know those efforts to be funny that don't work yes (laughs) you know or something that like i can definitely (laughs) relate to you know my own in my own like personal life i mean you know that that seems very real you know those kind of efforts to be funny that don't work Um, well you don't have to be specific but have you experienced the first date that obviously doesn't (laughs) get this surreal or this dark or I mean, uh, sure, yeah, sure. Something akin to this experience, I think most people can relate to, and that's also why I'm trying to highlight it for people to to experience this movie because it may not be exactly like seeing the play live in person, clearly, because you're a part of the audience and it's all happening right in front of you. But the fact that this exists, I think, is kind of a treasure, uh, and I want Tom Noonan to create that sequel that he's talked about in interviews. I think that would be really cool. I don't know yeah, how it would play that, now, but yeah, it's I'm so all for weird. It. It's so weird when, um, you know, these indie films, you know, like, you know, like you get sequels to welcome to the dollhouse or sequels to Henry fool or sequels to, I mean, but it was weird once before sunrise had a sequel. <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's very weird to me when, you know, things like what happened was could have a part. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I mean, I welcome it. I mean, I anything he makes, I would be excited to see. But um, yeah, I'm just glad that this is, you know, finally, you know, on the Criterion Channel and has a Blu-ray through Oscilloscope Laboratories, and it's, um, you know, I mean, it's it's been out of the public eye for a long time, and I think that I think that it's held up pretty well. I mean, like watching it again, there's like not a lot of. Um, things that mark it as a 1994 movie in terms of the cultural references or things like that. It feels pretty timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to before sunrise in that way is that I can go back to it and still relate to those characters and look forward to spending time with those characters. You know, I mean, even if they, uh, have moments where I don't approve of their behavior or they say something that I don't think was cool. <laughs> I I still understand that's what human beings do and it shows nothing but love for these lonely people. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about any story or any uh, screenplay is when it's clear that there's grounded empathy even if there are surreal touches or things that man are kind of creepy at times, <laughs> you know, it, even, even that sound she makes the first time I heard that I was like, what, what? Oh, okay. 
and it's similar to lots of things in, in I'm thinking of ending things where you're like, that's a weird choice, but I love it. And yeah, both of these actors are great. This movie is great. And I want everybody who is hearing our voices to see it. Because <laughs> this is a movie you must see. Thank you, Bill, so much. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to end with before we wrap up? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I've, I've I've said everything. Just to yeah, know that it's a it's a film I've always really liked, and I'm you know it would urge more people to uh, to check it out. Yes, as would I. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk with me about this for an hour. This was a blast, and I hope other people enjoyed this conversation just as much as I have. Yeah, me too. 